Let's pray. Father, as we consider the words of that song, may our hearts never treat lightly. May we never treat lightly the sacrifice that our Lord and Savior made on the cross on behalf of those of us who have turned from sin and turned to Him and trusted in Him for the forgiveness of our sins. May we recognize and understand the great price that was paid so that we who were dead to God could become alive to You and now dead to sin. May we live our lives in such a manner that we are light to this dark world and salt that creates a spiritual thirst. May our lives reflect your character and your presence in our lives so that those who do not know you could be drawn to you and your wonderful love. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The uh, story is told of a kindergarten teacher who on Teacher Appreciation Day was receiving gifts from her pupils. The first pupil to come forward was the florist's son, and he handed her a gift that was wrapped, and she shook it, and she held it above her head, and she said to him, I bet I know what this is. There's flowers in here. And sure enough, as she opened it, there were flowers, and the student was just amazed at how this woman would know this. The next child that came forward was the, uh, the, the daughter of a candy store owner. Handed her a box, opened up the box, shook it above her head and said, I'll bet you there's a box of candy in here. And the, I mean, the students were going crazy. It's like, well, how does she know this? And opened it up and sure enough, there's a box of candy. And uh, the third student who came forward was a little boy who handed a, a gift in a bag and she held this bag and it was leaking and she knew that her, this boy's mom and dad owned the area liquor store. And so she could only begin to imagine what it was and she tasted it and she said, is it, is it a bottle of wine? And he goes, no, and he's giggling. And he goes, no, it's not a bottle of wine. And she tasted it again a little bit longer this time and said, is it champagne? And he goes, no, no, it's not champagne. And, and she looked at him and said, okay, I give up. What is it? He goes, it's a puppy. <laughs> and, and just the whole idea of expectations just sometimes not being fulfilled. You know, the, the point is that things aren't always as they appear at first glance. You know, we have to dig deeper. We've got to really dig into the facts and the evidence to, to ascertain or discover the truth. And expectations aren't always what they turn out to be. And as we've been going through uh, the Gospel of Luke, specifically as, it refers to, as we refer to the Lord's Prayer found in Luke chapter 11, you know, I realized that my expectations going in were different than what I came out with as far as what I discovered as far as the truth of God's Word. And if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 11, where we'll continue, as, uh, as many of you know, this was a two-part series, and today we'll be finishing part three. Uh, so it just goes to show you how much depth is here, and there's even more, but we're going to go ahead and uh, complete uh, you know, part three of a two-part series, and this will wrap up this morning in this particular section of the Gospel of Luke as we continue our study throughout Luke's gospel, but we read in verse 1 of Luke chapter 11, and it came about that while he was praying, referring to Jesus in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say this, Father, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread and forgive our sins, for we also have forgiven everyone who was indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Suppose one of you shall have a friend, and shall go to him at midnight, and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, 
For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he shall answer and say, Don't bother me. The door's already been shut. My children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he's a friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. And I say to you, ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it shall be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And thus far we've learned from this passage the priority prayer that's laid out in verse 1 by the example of Jesus and the experience of the disciples who were taught prayers by those who led them, specifically John the Baptist in this case. We saw the personal nature of prayer, that we're to pray Father or Abba, that relationship that we have, that God is not distant, that God wants to have an intimate, personal intimacy, a relationship with every one of us whom He has created. And then we saw the pattern for prayer, which is found in verses 2 through 4. And that pattern for prayer first recognizes God's character. All prayer must be focused on God and who He is, on His character, who God is, and what we can look at as far as His will is concerned. As we pray, we pray with an understanding of God's will as it's revealed in His Word. We pray with an understanding that we're not going to ask Him things that He has already expressly said are wrong. We can ask for those things that are right before God. We can go expectantly before the throne of grace that we can find mercy in our time of need. We can go to God with our request. But first we have to recognize and understand who He is and His character. And as we pray in light of God's will through His Word as it's revealed, we know we can confidently ask for certain things. We can confidently go to Him and say, Lord, you know, I'm praying for so-and-so because I know that it is Your will that none would perish but all come into everlasting life. If you've ever struggled with a family member or a friend or a co-worker or anyone that you know that has not come to faith in Christ, has not repented of sin, we know that we can go confidently and expectantly before God and say, God, you know, I'm praying for so-and-so, that their heart would be ripe, that their heart would be softened, that they would, that they would hear your word and respond appropriately to the grace and the mercy that you ask. And we know that we can pray that prayer with confidence because it's the expressed will of God that's found in his word. We need to know the Word of God so we know the will of God so that when we pray, we can pray according to His will. Jesus said we come to Him and say, Father, holy or reverent is Your name. Your kingdom will come. There's no purpose of Yours or plan of Yours that will be ever thwarted. We know that Jesus Christ came to this earth by the predetermined plan of God because it was God's plan that Jesus was crucified. It was God's plan that He was raised up again from the dead. And nothing man could do would ever thwart or deny God's purposes. Jesus said, I go into Jerusalem and three days from now, you know, I will be crucified and and I will be resurrected afterwards and meet me in Galilee and God's program will continue. And we know that God's plans and His purposes will never be thwarted by any human being. There's nothing that you and I will ever ever do to stop the plan of God. Therefore, we need to know what it is and then be submissive to God's plan and we have peace and joy and contentment knowing that we are in God's hands according to His plans. 
And so as we look at all of this, Jesus is teaching us that there's a vertical dimension of prayer that has to be understood before we bring the horizontal or our request to God. So oftentimes it's reversed. We come to them and say, God, this is what I want, and you exist in this universe to serve me. And the reality of it is, no, God is God and we all exist to serve Him, to worship Him, to honor Him, to reflect His character to the world around us. And when we go to Him, oftentimes we think we know what we want, but it's always tempered by, but your will be done. God, this is my will. This is what I would desire. This is what I see. And as I go through Scripture, it was great. I was going through the Psalms and the psalmist said, Lord, you know... I can't exalt your name if I'm in the grave. And so I've gone to God and I prayed that prayer. Lord, you know what? You know, you can call me home and that would be a wonderful reward. But I can't praise your name. I can't preach your word. I can't exalt who you are before the world if you take me home. So it's my, my desire to stay that I can continue to serve you. But nevertheless, your will be done. And you can't lose one way or the other. I mean, it's just it's a it's a no brainer. And so as we look at this, now he tells us, after we have a clear understanding of who he is, his word, his truth, his character, his plans, his purpose, now we can come to him and start to ask from the standpoint of our own requests, the requests that we should bring to God, and Jesus outlines those. And he says, first of all, he teaches us to say, you know, Lord, give us this day, each day our daily bread, for daily provision, for meeting our needs today. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in today. Not to be anxious for tomorrow, for each day has enough trouble of its own. Matthew 6, worrying about tomorrow and worrying about this or that or what we're going to do and what, where we're going to go and all of these things. As James you know, writes, he warns us about saying, I'm going to go to this city and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. I'm going to make this much money. I'm gonna... And he said, wait a minute. You're presuming upon God. You're presuming that you have those days. What he's saying to each and every one of us is, live today to please God. Live today. Live this moment today, and at the end of today, you'll have no regrets before God. And if He gives you tomorrow, then get up with the same prayer on your lips. Lord, today, meet the needs that I have, but more importantly, may you use me to accomplish your purposes and your plans, to expand your kingdom. So we have to live in the moment because this is the moment that we have. We forget what lies behind. behind. We press on to what lies ahead. But in the meantime, today is the day that you and I have to serve the Lord. Today is the day that you have, if you have never come to faith in Christ, to turn from sin and to trust in Him. You can't presume upon tomorrow. You can't say, I'm still thinking it over. I'm still taking it into consideration. Uh, Give me some more time to think about it. You know what? You don't know, and I don't know, if you even have that time. So do not put off that decision that needs to be made today to turn from sin and to trust in Christ, His death upon the cross, the power of His resurrection, to be born again by the will of God, not by human efforts. It's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God to all who just ask, God, save me. God, forgive me. God, I trust in Your Son's death on my behalf. I trust in His resurrection. I receive Him as Lord and Savior. Do not ever put that off. We presume upon God. But you know what? Today is the day of the Holy Spirit. Today is the day that we need to respond. And so as we look at this, he says, give us this day our daily bread, materially and spiritually. We're also, according to Jesus, to go to God and say, you know what, and Lord, forgive us our sins today 
Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Forgive us our sins as we have forgiven everyone who has sinned against us. You know, I took a look at a comparative study Bible and laid out before me, you know, different, different translations. And I compared Luke chapter 11 with Matthew 6. And in the King James it says, And forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. In Matthew's version it says, And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The Amplified says, And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us who has offended us or done us wrong. And forgive us our debts, Matthew 6, for we also have forgiven, left, remitted, and let go of the debts and have given up our resentment towards others. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted and forgive our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. The NIV says, Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. Forgive us our sins as we have forgiven our debtors. And you can't miss as you read through this that it becomes apparent that forgiveness must be fulfilled as a condition before we can even go to God and ask for our own forgiveness. And Luke's use of the present tense expresses a continual spirit of forgiveness in the hearts of those who ask for God's forgiveness. You and I, if, if, and you've got to keep in mind who Jesus is teaching this prayer to or this pattern of prayer as we've seen, he's teaching it to God's people. He says, you, when you pray, pray Father or Abba. We have been adopted, Galatians 4 and Romans chapter 8. You and I who have turned from sin and trusted in Christ have been adopted into God's family. And he's saying now as a child of God, those who have been forgiven at the cross of Christ and have been resurrected to the newness of life as Jesus was raised again from the dead, those of us who are born again, not by our own efforts, but by the will of God, have been born again, are now children of God to those who believe in the name or the authority of Jesus to forgive sins. He's saying to you and I who have trusted in Christ, he's saying to us, pray this prayer. And it's important to understand that he's saying pray this prayer from the standpoint of continuously having a spirit or willingness to forgive those who offend us, who have harmed us. There's a day goes by where the potential is not great that you or I can be offended by someone or offend someone else. And he's saying before you can go to God and say, you know, Father, forgive me this day my sins, he's saying before you can even go to him, you have to already have offered forgiveness to those who have offended you. And as we look at this, it, it's, it's important to recognize and understand we're not talking about positionally. Those who are in Christ are in Christ. Just as your child, when your child comes into this world, as your child grows up, there are many times that there are uh, differences of opinion and there are uh, things that are done or said that, that offend one another. And positionally, your child is always your child and positionally, a parent is always a parent to a child. But there are times where there is a strain in the relationship. There are times where the fellowship is not the same. There are times when the harmony is just not there. The unity, the kindred spirit, that oneness isn't there. There are times where you can, just, you can cut the tension in a room with a knife because you're not on the same place, in the same page. And what he's saying is, you know, Chuck, before you come to me and ask me to forgive your sins, you need to extend forgiveness to those who have offended you. 
And then I will forgive your sins when it comes to relationally. And then you and I can continue to live in fellowship together. And we can move forward to accomplish my plans and my purposes, says God. We need to recognize and understand how important this is. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. And Matthew expresses to us as we look at the Matthew chapter 6... Well, go, in fact, look at uh, Matthew 5, verse 7 first, where it says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You know, throughout Luke's gospel, we understand and recognize, you know, a person who is genuinely a disciple of Jesus Christ, one who is following in his footsteps, one who wants to obe- be obedient to God, is a person who will express mercy or share mercy on those who sometimes, in our own viewpoint, don't deserve mercy. But he's saying, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. If you extend mercy, then you'll receive God's mercy. In in Matthew's account, following the Lord's Prayer, as we see it in Matthew, in verse 14 and 15 in chapter 6, it says, for if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Now remember, this has nothing to do with salvation. It has to do with fellowship. It has to do with communion with God. He says, but if you don't forgive men, then your father will not forgive your transgressions. If you'll turn forward to Matthew chapter 18, a passage that deals specifically with the idea of forgiving others and an unwillingness to forgive others. Then Peter came and said in verse 21 of Matthew 18, he said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? How many times do I got to forgive somebody? Up to seven times, that was what the law required. And he says, no, Jesus said, no, I don't say to you up to seven, but I say up to 70 times seven. And then he went on and he explained it in a parable. He said, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, there was brought up him one who owed him 10,000 talents, which is in today's economy, about 12 million bucks. But since he didn't have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had in repayment to be made. And the slave, therefore, falling down, prostrated himself before him and said, Have patience with me and I'll repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and he released him forthwith, forgave him his debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, which is about 17 bucks. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell down and began to to beg of him or entreat upon him, Have patience with me and I'll repay you. He was unwilling, however, but he went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that they had seen take place. And summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave. I forgave all that debt because you entreated me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed. And he said, so shall my heavenly father also do to you. If each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. And you can't miss, as you look at this, the scriptures are so conclusive as we see this. 
that the Puritan Thomas Watson once said, a man can as well go to hell for not forgiving as for not believing. And it's interesting to understand the context because don't, don't misunderstand, forgiving others isn't how we earn our salvation. But forgiving others is a reflection of the character of God and His presence within the life of God's people. Jesus Himself, as He was on the cross, one of the last words that He said was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Stephen, as he was martyred, looked up into the throne room of heaven and seeing Jesus standing at the right hand of God, fixing His eyes upon Him, said to God, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And as I consider the standard that was set, what God is saying to you and I, God's people, His redeemed, He's saying that you and I have a, have a, have a command from God to forgive one another just as God in Christ has forgiven us. Ephesians 4, 29-32 says that we're to lay aside all resentment. We're to lay aside all bitterness. We're to lay aside all anger and malice and wrath and all that just boils up within us. We're to lay it all aside and we're commanded to be kind, tender-hearted. Not hard-hearted, not callous, but tender-hearted. To kind and tender-hearted, forgiving one another just as God in Christ has forgiven us. We are to forgive others just as God in Christ has forgiven us. And unless you forgive others, you read your own death warrant when you repeat the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as we have already forgiven others. And the point is very simple. If you have not already forgiven others, then God will not forgive your sins. And the, the strain in the relationship continues until you're willing, and I am willing, to forgive those who have harmed us in some way. You know, true believers are, are forgiving people. It doesn't mean we don't wrestle with forgiveness. It doesn't mean we don't struggle with forgiveness. It doesn't mean that it comes naturally to be able to forgive those who have hurt us. But it does mean that there is a battle that takes place where God living within us, Christ living within us, the Spirit of God within us is saying to each of us, saying, forgive others so that God can forgive you and move on with your life and move on with your walk with God and move on with the purposes for which God has called you to do the works that He has ordained before the foundation of the world. He's saying that, you know what, you don't have time to waste holding resentment and grudges and bitterness towards other people. And I will say this, and I will say this boldly. If you are unwilling to forgive, then you better examine yourself to see if you are really in Christ. You better examine your heart to see if you are really born again. If you are unwilling to forgive and you have no desire to forgive, I will say by the authority of God's Word that you better examine your heart because Christ living within us, the Spirit of God, forgives. God forgives. God forgives and God forgets. And we must never minimize this truth or sweep it under the rug for the sake of holding on to bitterness or anger or wrath or grudges or resentment. You know, several years ago, the company I worked for at that time was purchased by Arco and uh, instantly we became part of what was called the corporate world. And it was fascinating to, to meet people that I had never had exposure to. And one particular man that I met at that time he worked for the corporation, and he worked as an officer in the corporation, and his job was one thing only. That's all that he did. And his job title was conflict resolution. 
And, and that's all that he did. He went from subsidiary to subsidiary, division to division. You know, there are conflicts between divisions. There is conflict between subsidiaries. There is conflict between management and staff. There are conflict between employees. There is conflict from customers to, 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 the, uh, to the business side. You know, it, there was conflict. there's conflict all the time. And the reason there's conflict is because there's people. And, and this seems to be a common denominator. You know, where there's people, there's conflict. Because everybody has their own idea of how something should be done. James writes, isn't the source of quarrels among you? Is it just not your own selfishness? I mean, think about it. Aren't, you know, the, the problems that you have in your home or your businesses, your marriages with your children is because somebody wants to do something that somebody else doesn't want them to do? You know, I, I officiated a wedding yesterday and I told him, I said, you know, to the groom behind stage and women, I think you'll appreciate this. I told the guy behind stage, I didn't realize that that videographer was picking up on all this, but, but uh, I told him behind stage, I said, just let me give you a tip. Almost, you know, 29 years of marriage coming up in a couple of weeks. And, and one thing I learned is this, if you want to resolve conflict in your marriage, just, you know, learn to say this to your wife, honey, I'm sorry. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? That's it. And as long as I know that I'm always wrong, and Linda's always right. We get along great. Right, ladies? Peach your brother. That's what I thought. That's the way it works, see? And, and, as, and as long as you understand that, and there's one guy booed and his wife's not here today. Uh, that's the only reason they had that kind of confidence to boo. But, but, it, but it's just, that's what it's all about. It's conflict. It's conflict continual. And conflict resolution revolves around forgiveness. You know, Billy Graham conducted a recent crusade and a group of 20 respected psychologists were sent to listen to his sermons and then write up their criticism for newspapers. They all agreed on one thing and every one of their reports, every one of them agreed upon one thing. When Dr. Graham called on people to repent and receive God's forgiveness, his admonitions were psychologically sound. You know, the director of a mental institution in Knoxville, Tennessee, was quoted as saying that 50% of the patients in that facility could go home if only they knew and believed they had been forgiven for what they had done. You know, the inability to forgive destroys the foundation and intimacy of any relationship. You know, stored up resentment, grudges, bitterness, uh, all of that, if left unconfronted and unresolved, you know, affect the unity of the body of Christ. And it, and it dulls the cutting edge of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We all need forgiveness. We all need to forgive. It is the oil of relationship. It reduces the natural tensions that occur between people. The question that I have as I look at Luke chapter 11 for my life and I throw that out to you to consider is this. Is this forgiveness petition in the Lord's prayer a curse or a blessing in your life? You know, our, you know, sometimes our, you know, you got to ask the question, are our most, you know, tightly held possessions our grudges, our desire to get even with people who have harmed us, our desire to make a statement and take a stand and say, you know what, this is the way I'm going to pay them back. You know, the desire for, for revenge often leads to even further personal humiliation. I love the story and I take it to heart, you know, because it, re, it refers to a pastor who, you know, committed the unpardonable sin of a pastor and that is forgetting his sermon notes as he drove to church. And he got to church and he realized he forgot his notes and he was preaching a passage on, you know, where Jesus used fish and loaves to feed the multitudes. And he stood up there and he got all confused and he, and he said that Jesus took 4,000 barley loaves, 6,000 fishes, and he fed 24 people. 
and he had plenty left over. You know, when someone in the congregation yelled out and said, well, anybody could do that. And it kind of caught him off guard. He finished his sermon and he went and he got back in the car and he drove home and he was really, he was upset at this guy and he told his wife, you know, how can that guy yell that out? And she said, well, can I share with you what you said? And he said, what? I didn't say that. Well, yeah, you did. And uh, he goes, oh, well, I'm going to get even with him. And so he kind of went through the passage, and it was a new passage, but somehow he was able to tie the old passage into the new sermon the following week. And he went on, and he began to talk about how Jesus took, you know, five barley loaves, two fishes, and he fed a multitude. It was probably 24,000 people. And then he pointed to the guy that yelled at him last week and said, hey, can you do that? And the guy says, I sure can. He said, what? How are you going to do that? He said, I'm going to use all the stuff left over from your last sermon. You can't, you can't get even. You can't choose to be vengeful. You can't be, have resentment. You can't have grudges. I mean, it just always, you, know, you always end up being worse off than you were. Saying, just forgive. You know, how good is God to put it so simple as this? You don't have to study this very hard to read what it says. God, forgive my sins as I have already forgiven everyone who has sinned against me. And when I got to that point, I was so convicted by God's Spirit. I said, Lord, reveal to me anyone in my life, any situation, any person throughout all of my life that I have stored up resentment or grudges or bitterness or wrath or malice or any of that. Reveal it to me. And even if I don't know, I want to right here and right now, I want to forgive them. Just as you have forgiven me, I want to forgive them. And I want to move forward my walk with you. I want to move on. You know, as I thought about that, I thought, you know, this is a terrible petition for those who are not willing to forgive. But it's a wonderful blessing to those who forgive just as God in Christ has forgiven us. And I know as I speak these words that, you know, that there are people here that are listening to this, that have stored up resentment or grudges or anger. And, and it always is followed by, but, but, but let me tell you what they did. But let me explain to you what, what, how much that hurt me. Let me tell you what they did to my family. But, 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 no, there's no buts. There's, there's no but here. It doesn't say forgive our sins as we forgive those who it's convenient to forgive or easy to forgive or but haven't hurt us deeply. It says, forgive our sins as we forgive others. Some of us need to forgive our spouse. Now, I'm thinking, and what's been wonderful about cancer, and I've told you many times it's been such a blessing in so many ways, but what's been wonderful is that Linda and I had this conversation the other night as we were talking about different things, and we were able to look at each other and say, you know what, but you know what, we don't have any regrets that if I died or she died or whatever, it's like we have no regrets. Everything that needs to be said has been said. Everything that needs to be done has been done till this moment in time. And today is a new opportunity to know that, you know, I, I, it breaks my heart when I people, hear people say, you know, my father died, my mother died, this person died or that person died, and I never got to tell them I love them or I never got to tell them they're forgiven or I never got to ask for their forgiveness. And I think, what, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Today is the day that God wants us to commit before God 
to forgive a spouse who has harmed us or hurt us. And God knows that that is very possible that we are going to offend one another in some way. To make a commitment to forgive a child who has hurt us or not lived up to our expectations. We expected wine or champagne in the bag and we got puppy stuff. And it wasn't what we expected. And we have this bitterness or this anger, this resentment that's built up. And and we need to forgive them. We need to forgive her, forgive him. Just as we have been forgiven. We've all been harmed by employers and there's this resentment or bitterness. Forgive them. We've been harmed by other churches. Other pastors. Other elder boards. Forgive them. Because if you can forgive them, I know you'll be able to forgive me. Because I guarantee you, I will offend you if you're around here long enough. But I know... Hey, hey, hey. See, you know, you people, you got to know when to clap. You got to know when to say amen. I know there's not a textbook on this, but you know what? Just ask God's Spirit to direct, okay? But the reality of it is, is that we, we have to be there. Forgive them. You know, Paul said that I forget what lies behind. All the things I thought were good in my life, you know, I forget what lies behind. And, and at the same time, we need to recognize that, you know, uh, love doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 5. And what it means is that love doesn't take into account or calculate the wrong that has been suffered in order to enact revenge. But what we are to do as God's people, we are to calculate. We are to carefully consider. We are to put on account, as Paul writes in Philippians 4, 8, those things that are true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and of good repute. You say, you don't, but you don't know how bad I've been hurt. And I say, well, to you, I share with what I've got to struggle with, and that is this. Picture Jesus on the cross. How badly was he hurt? You've seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ, and it has visualized for us what we have studied and learned and thought we knew, but now we truly understand the brutality of the cross. Picture how he was hurt, how he was crushed on our behalf. And hear his words of forgiveness. He was beaten beyond recognition. The movie had the one compassionate eye, but Scripture tells us that he was beaten beyond recognition that you wouldn't even be able to know who he was. He was crowned with thorns. He was whipped. He was spat upon. He was slapped. He was blindfolded. He was taken to the cross and he was nailed to the cross by the predetermined plan of God so that you and I who trust in his death And in His resurrection, we can find forgiveness and never have to pay a price ourselves. His atonement was satisfactory before God. It was pleasing to God. It was well-pleasing in His sight. You picture what He went through. Don't you ever say, you don't know what it's like to have gone through what I went through? He says, you be kind and tender-hearted. You forgive others just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. Isn't that the truth? People that hurt us, they don't know what they do. They don't even know half the time that they're hurting us. Other half of the time, they don't care. 
But it doesn't really matter because it's not conditional. Whether they know or don't know, whether it's intentional or unintentional, whatever the harm, whatever the harm that's been created, we're still told to forgive. And when we forgive, we're like Jesus. And we're to be conformed into His image. And I'll tell you what, there's so much depth to this prayer. My challenge for you today is not to waste another moment in time harboring any bitterness, any grudges, any resentment toward any person for anything that they've done and forgive them so that as you sin, God will forgive you according to the same standard. That's more important than our daily bread. Our daily pardon should be our greatest priority before God. We're also to ask Him for protection. And He goes on and He says, And lead us not into temptation. And to recognize and understand, and there's, you know, there's all this conflict, it's like, well, wait a minute, but God doesn't lead us into temptation, deliver us from evil. You know, God can't tempt us to evil because there's no darkness in Him whatsoever. James is clear on that. When you're tempted, don't ever say, God's tempting me to do evil because there's no evil in God. There's no darkness in God. God doesn't lead us into something that's wrong. We're, it's very clear in Scripture. We've got an enemy, the devil, who's there, who, who temptation, uh, you know, entices us to do that which we already want to do within our own sinful nature. And what we're to pray is this, you know what, God, lead us away from temptation that will overpower us or entice us to do anything that is wrong before you. Today, as, as we look forward to this day, God, lead me away from anything that would cause me to stumble or fall and, and choose to do wrong before you. Lead me away from temptation that is so overpowering and the enticement is so great that I'll reach out and I'll grab the apple, so to speak. Lead me away from all of that. Deliver me from evil. Because I know that you are able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we ask or think. And I know I can pray that expectantly because there's no temptation that has overtaken any one of us. But is common to man. But God, I know that you're faithful. And with that temptation, you will provide a way of escape so that I am able to endure it. Temptation is not always a bad thing. Jesus was tempted, and when he was tempted, it flushed out the motives of the evil one. It showed exactly, you know, the tendency to be tempted and the strategy or the schemes of the enemy to always call into question the truthfulness and the reliability of the Word of God. So, you know, temptation is not a bad thing if we don't fall into temptation, if we choose not to buy into the lie, if we see it for what it is. Temptation and testing and trials strengthen us. We can consider it all joy when we encounter various trials knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance. And endurance has its perfect result that will be perfect and complete, mature, lacking in nothing. You need tested. I need tested. I'm in the midst of a test and I need that according to the Word of God so that I can become more mature in my faith. And so do you need it. We all need it. But we need to pray to God and lead me not into temptation that will overwhelm me that will cause me to stumble or fall and deliver me from evil and use that testing in my life in a way that you will refine who you want me to be so that when people see me, they see Jesus living within me. That's our prayer. That's what we should be praying. And as we look at this, we recognize and understand that there's a vertical dimension of prayer that we go to God recognizing who He is, 
what his will is, what his word clearly say, which says we never ask for anything outside of his will. We ask that his will will be done through our lives, that his kingdom will be expanded, that he'll use us to bring people to faith in Christ, that he'll use us to encourage and equip and build up one another for the work of ministry. Then we go to him and say, Lord, give me my daily provision. I don't take anything for granted. I'm not leaning on our savings account. I'm not leaning on my ability. I'm not leaning on 20 or 30 or 40 years of industry experience. I am leaning totally on you. I'm relying upon you. You're the one who gives every good thing. All good gifts come from you. The fact I got up today was because of you. Why would I lean on anybody else? And then I pray for my daily pardon. God, forgive my sins. Just as you know, I have already forgiven everyone who has ever offended or hurt me in any way. And now lead me and protect me from that temptation which will lead me into sin before you. Because if I choose to do what's wrong before you, God, how can I accomplish your will? How can I be used by you for your purposes in your kingdom? If I'm wasting my time slopping in the pig pen, so to speak, entertaining sinful behavior, entertaining sinful thoughts, entertaining sinful life, if I'm doing all of that, I'm not doing what you've called me to do. To be used by you to expand your kingdom. To be used by you to reflect Christ within me. To be used by you to create spiritual thirst in the lives who don't know you. If I'm here slopping in the mud, there's nothing attractive about my life. Everyone looks at me and says, who wants, I'm, you know, who wants to be a pig like that? I'm already a pig like that. I want to know what you're all about. Stop wasting time. Turn from sin. Turn to God. And live in victory today. That's what we find in this prayer. And he's not even done. And he goes on and then he illustrates it. And we see the persistence in prayer that he goes on and says, and he said to them, suppose one of you, and we know the story. He's saying, hey, there's somebody asleep and, you know, their kids are in bed and they're in bed, but somebody comes to visit your house. And, 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 and hospitality, Middle Eastern hospitality said, hey, you don't turn anybody away. They took pride in being hospitable, opening their homes to people that would come in. And as people would come in and say, oh, man, you know, I got a friend in and I don't have any food. So he goes over to the neighbors, hey, I need some bread. And the guy goes, hey, I'm sleeping. Get away from me. But it doesn't matter. I need some bread. Go to sleep. We are in bed. It doesn't matter. I need some bread. And I mean, you know, you do that long enough. It's like, here's your stinking bread. And, and that's what he did. Boom, boom, boom. You know, he tossed it out. And, and, the, and what Jesus is saying is that, hey, listen. The persistence of prayer is that we don't have a God who has to be woken up to sleep. He's asleep. He's not sleeping. He doesn't sleep or slumber. He's there. He's listening. But he was saying, what he's saying is this. It's a comparative thing. If somebody evil does it just because they want to shut somebody up, how much more so would a good God respond to the persistent prayers of his people? Don't grow weary in praying. Be steadfast and movable. Always have an attitude of prayer. Pray without ceasing. And, on that, and in that note, I thank you for your persistent prayer on my behalf. Because as you go before the throne room of God and we continue to persistently pray before God and we express our desire that, God, your will be done. And at the same time, your will is that your word goes out. Your will is, is that people come to faith in Christ. Your will is that the saints will be built up. And if this brother is doing those things, then pray that he sticks around long enough. And if he ever stops doing that, then you can take him. 
And we need to pray not only for me, we need to pray for one another. We need to be persistent in our prayers for one another as we go before the throne room of God. And and, and what he's saying is very simple. How much more so does a good God respond than a grouchy, sleepy neighbor who will still respond to the needs of his neighbor? And he goes on and talks about the promises for prayer. And that's the last thing that he says. He says, and I say to you, ask. And it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it shall be opened. And don't forget, we're taking it in the context. He's saying if you're asking according to God's word, it refers to prayer. Going to God. Ask according to his word. And it implies requesting assistance for our conscious need. God, you know, help me in this area. We realize our lack and we ask for help. The word also suggests humility in asking because one of the things that keeps us from asking of one another is that we're prideful. And, and to ask for help is a cry out of humility. I need your help. God, I need you. You have made it abundantly clear there's nowhere else to go but to you. I need you. It's a cry of humility. But he also says, don't just ask. He says, to seek. And the balances I can share from my own illustration is, God, I ask for this in my life. But at the same time, I seek out counsel. There's safety in a multitude of counsel. I go to those whom you have given the ability, you know, doctors, physicians, uh, people that I can go to for counsel. And we go and we consider all the counsel and this person says this and this person says that and, you know, and this diet says to do this and this person says to do this treatment. And, and, and it's like, and you have, to, you have to kind of weave your way through all of this. And say, you know, and, and I'm, we're asking, but we're also seeking. And when we're seeking, we're told that we'll find. And, and, and as we knock, finally, it's, it's a combination of both. It's asking plus acting plus persevering. And as we continue to, to ask, as we continue to seek, as we continue to knock, we're told, you know what? There's the, promises of, the promise of God. It shall be opened. It'll become abundantly clear to all who are asking, seeking, and knocking. What should be clear? What God's will is. At the end of the day, I don't know personally, as far as just cancer is concerned, if it's God's will that I live or if it's God's will that he takes me home. I don't know that as I stand here. But I ask, I seek, I knock. And at the end of the day, we'll all know specifically what his will is. And you know what? And that's okay. Because God's will be done. And there's nothing you and I can ever do to stop it or thwart it. So we rest in his purposes for our life. You know, and as we go through it, there's much comfort. And the comfort in closing is this. It says, suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He's not going to give him a snake, will he? Can you imagine, Dad, your boy comes home and he needs a new pair of tennis shoes for, you know, basketball. Here's a new pa- I need some new tennis shoes. Well, you know what? I'm thinking you need a snake. <laughs> wrap those suckers, wrap those around your feet and try that out. See what kind of lift you get off of those. You know, it just doesn't happen. Or he goes on and says, or if he needs an egg, he's not going to give him a scorpion, will he? You know, although, you know, I don't know how good eggs are for you. But then again, you know, it's all this diet information I've been getting. But, but um, you know, he says he's not going to give him a scorpion. And his point is, he said, look, you know, if you as, as sinful people know how to be good dads to some degree, how much more so does our God know how to give his kids. And can you think of anything that would be more appropriate than that to end this section 
on the Lord's Prayer. How much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of Him? God, give me your Spirit. May I be filled with your Spirit. And I don't want any confusion over asking for the Holy Spirit. We ask for God's forgiveness. We trust in Christ, His death on the cross. We believe in His resurrection. And God, you give us the Holy Spirit. You give us His presence in our life to those who are born again as a down payment or hand money of the promises that you make that where we are, that your Spirit is, one day we shall be with Him. And so we know that we don't ask for the Holy Spirit's presence, but we ask for the Holy Spirit's power. We ask for His, his uh, filling of our life. His influence, His direction, His control. We ask that He teaches us and guides us into all truth. We ask us that He continues to remind us of the Lord Jesus Christ. As Jesus said, I go away and if I go away, I will send my comforter. We ask for the comfort and the presence of God's Spirit as we endure various trials. And the contentment that we have knowing God that You are in control of all things. And God, how much more so Will you, a good and righteous and holy and revered God, give to your children who ask of you? So God, we ask, we seek, and we knock. And we do so persistently and shamelessly. We do so expectantly. Because we know that you are a God who hears. And we boldly approach your throne through Jesus Christ, our mediator, our Lord, our Savior, that we all can find mercy in our time of need. God, I pray that each one of us here today will forgive those who have harmed us and not carry resentment or bitterness, but if we calculate anything, we calculate what is true and lovely and good, of good repute, that we let our minds dwell on those things. And as we do so, we come to you and then ask for our daily forgiveness. God, we thank you for the fellowship that we have. We thank you for the direction that you give. We thank you for the gifts that you've given us to use in your service. May we continue to do so until Jesus returns or until you call us home. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.